When the children of Israel returned from their exile, they faced the challenge of starting over. There's no other way to describe it. The challenge was humbling and disconcerting. In the fine arts, starting over is an admission that the performance has gotten so seriously off track that no amount of improvisation will cure the situation. For a person in business, starting over usually means filing for bankruptcy, closing down operations, and embarking on something new. Not only is there an admission of failure, but the realization also that financial resources are not as substantial as they had been. Those who start over face adverse circumstances, and so it was for the people who came back to the site of the wrecked city of Jerusalem. They faced discouragement over the loss of previous prosperity. They faced grief over the loss of time all those years since the destruction happened. They faced a sense of greater vulnerability. They realized life was shorter. There was not as much time in which to redevelop. And perhaps the most adverse circumstance is the realization that no success at that point can replace what was lost. So here came the people of Judah back to their ancestral home after 70 years of exile. They were starting over and there was not much with which to begin. They arrived at the site of what was once the city of David, the proud city of Jerusalem. Weeds protruded from the fire-blackened piles of rubble that marked the streets of the city. The wall in which the residents of previous generations placed so much confidence was shattered and in many places was no barrier at all. But nothing was as dispiriting as the place where Solomon's temple once stood. There in the harsh glare of the Judean sun, the great heap of crumbled stone and the disappearance of all the gold that glittered from that building emphasized that the old life was gone and wasn't coming back. There were some who came back to Jerusalem who were small children when they went away to Babylon with their families and they could recall 
to whatever extent was possible, the sites of the Temple of Solomon. It was one of the wonders of the ancient world. And in their old age, they contrasted that which they could recall with the somber reality they saw before their aged eyes, and they felt the lack of everything they needed to start over. Beyond that sign of their poverty, they faced opponents who sought to keep reconstruction from taking place. Beyond that opposition was the reality that many of the people of Judah now were just as unspiritual as their ancestors were before them. It didn't take much in the way of discouragement to turn them aside from any thought of rebuilding the temple or the wall of the city. And so it came to pass, as we have read, that the work of rebuilding the city's most important structures fell into neglect and for a long period of time. The people lacked the resolve. They lacked the commitment to devote themselves to the work when so many challenges barred the way. It was not until the Lord sent unto the people the post-exilic prophets Haggai and Zechariah whose prophecies come next to each other in the scriptures. Not until they went to the people did the people recover the resolve to resume the project. The ministry of Haggai took place I always like to emphasize it over a period of a little more than three months. That was it in 520 BC. Specific references to to dates occur in connection with each message that the prophet delivered. The first chapter is the first sermon that the prophet delivered, and the second chapter presents the three subsequent sermons. In the first sermon, to which we are not going to give particular attention today, Haggai reproached the people for losing sight of their priorities and for giving way to despondency. He urged them in that chapter to consider their ways and to return to the work to which God called them. The sermons in the second chapter, when taken together, present a message for the encouragement of those who conclude that there's no way to carry out God's commands. The truth was that the second temple would not compare favorably to the temple of Solomon. The truth was that the wickedness of the people was erupting again. Even among the priests and the Levites. The judgments of the past and all the suffering of the past appeared to have little lasting effect 
though the judgments reduce the people to impoverishment. But God was not at a loss. The disobedience of his people did not derail his purpose. If the priests were guilty of uncleanness, and they were, there was a way of cleansing. If the resources for rebuilding the temple and the rest of the city were not there, then a greater resource was at the disposal of the people in their God. Did the people wonder how Messiah would come when there was no longer any king to sit on David's throne? Well, the divine purpose in this chapter was to enliven their expectations, to stir up their desire, even though it was still five centuries in advance, for the coming of the one who would sit on David's throne. So here in this chapter we find the Lord's message to the people. A people in economic and personal and spiritual poverty. But the Lord sent his servant to them with a message of challenge and comfort. It was the message of prosperity in poverty. Prosperity in poverty. I think I need to say right at the beginning that this prosperity is not that of which Joel Osteen and others of his ilk speak. That somehow we're all going to be millionaires No, it's a prosperity that has to do with spiritual things. The people of God in this age find themselves in the depths of dismay. God has called them to work in the midst of ungodliness. Compromise with ungodliness and apostasy from the truth. They run into the hard wall of unbelief and infatuation with the pleasures of the world. And they look at the compromising churches around them and say, with Asaph, they have devoted themselves to God's service for nothing. They see the deprivations that confront those who are keeping to the old paths of the Lord's precepts and who will not sell their souls. But sometimes they wonder, what is the use? That was the message of Job's wife to her husband when he was in the throes of his great trouble. Curse God and die. What's the use of maintaining your integrity? You consider the cause of God today and wonder how it can possibly survive. The resources seem exhausted. The world seems to succeed in draining away what little is left. God's people conclude it is just as well for them to follow other pursuits. Because building the house of God is just too hard. 
The years of exile were extremely discouraging. But the promise of God was that he would bless his people. The Lord's promise was he would bring Messiah into the world. He would shake the world. So the only way to true prosperity, spiritually, is through faith in Christ. So in this chapter there are three sermons and each has a distinct theme. And the first is obstacles. Obstacles. Verses 1 through 9. The opening verses of chapter 2 reveal the reality that the people will not be able to recreate the glory of Solomon's temple. They just didn't have the resources. They won't have available what Solomon had in his time. And when they saw the plans for the second temple, those who could remember the first one and compared those plans to the first one, they thought the second temple was a poor replacement. Indeed, so much so that they considered it worthless. They wondered what the point would be of constructing a utilitarian building to replace one that was so magnificent. Well, the Lord's word to them was they were right. It was a building on the outside that was far less appealing. But the people had to remember that sin has consequences. The judgment that reduced the first temple to a blackened pile of rubble was a judgment on the pride of the people in refusing the message of God's prophets, refusing to repent and to put away sin. They placed their confidence in the temple, not in the Lord of the temple. And the Lord took the temple away. Jeremiah chapter 52. Jeremiah 52. Verse 12. Now in the fifth month, in the tenth day of the month, which was the nineteenth year of Nebuchadrezzar, king of Babylon, came Nebuzaradan, captain of the guard, which served the king of Babylon into Jerusalem. And he burned the house of the Lord, that was Solomon's temple, and the king's house, and all the houses of Jerusalem, and all the houses of the great men burned he with fire, and all the army of the Chaldeans that were with the captain of the guard break down all the walls of Jerusalem roundabout. The Lord took the temple away. But God called the people even after all those disasters to move forward by committing themselves and all of their resources to the work of God. He urged them 
to be strong and to work. The obstacles were great, but God's word was he was greater than the obstacles. And he said that he was with them. So they were not to fear. They were to be about the work to which God called them. Now many people objected. They didn't have the funds with which to proceed. It's always an issue in any work for God. We don't have the money. We can't afford that. Well, the Lord said in this first sermon that he had the silver and the gold. That which they would need, he said he had it. If they feared that this new temple was just going to be a very basic building, a pathetic echo of the old, not something elaborate and magnificent, they weren't to be afraid of that comparison either. For the Lord said he would do something marvelous in that temple that they were to rebuild. He said in verse 7, he would fill the new house with glory. With glory. And what was that glory to be? The temple that they were to, to rebuild in Jerusalem was the temple where many scenes in the life of Jesus Christ took place. That was the temple. Not the magnificent structure that Solomon built, but this second temple. It would be there that Simeon would bless the infant Christ, and where Anna would speak of him to all who look for redemption in Jerusalem. Such would be the work of the Lord that the second temple, whatever people would think of it, would be more glorious than the first temple. Because the desire of all nations would come. So again, here were prophecies that were five centuries in advance. That is, they were prophecies that required the people to trust that what the Lord was telling them was going to come to pass because they were not going to live to see it. But the Prince of Peace was going to come. The one of whom it would be said, the zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. He was the one who would come into that temple and who would throw out of it the money changers and the sellers of animals. And his disciples remembered that it was written of him, the zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. So here is a sermon for those who face obstacles in God's work. They feel their poverty. God sets, sets before them the prospect of glory. That was the first sermon. Obstacles. But just two months later, another sermon came through the prophet Haggai. Encouragements. Encouragements. 
verses 10 through 19. The lessons of the past did not appear to resonate with the people. They followed the way of uncleanness. They took refuge that they knew the details of the interpretations of the ceremonial law. But they did not appreciate the wider application of the law to their circumstances. And the judgment of the Lord, as we read it here, was that they were still unclean. That is, their hearts were not any different than the attitudes of the people before the fall of Jerusalem. The Lord urged them to consider their experience. Their harvests were limited. We, we read there in uh, verse 16, when one came to a heap of 20 measures, there were but 10. When one came to the press vat for to draw out 50 vessels out of the press, there were but 20. Everything was limited. Here were people who knew adversity. But what do we read at the end of verse 17? Yet ye turned not to me, saith the Lord. They did not turn to the Lord. When the Lord challenges and places obstacles before his people, they, do not, they respond by not turning to the Lord. There was nothing from which they drew comfort. They had no guarantee of anything. But then came the promise that should lead the people to turn to the Lord. For he said, in spite of it all, he was going to bless his people. Grace and mercy flow from our God. The blessing of God is not something that people can earn. God said he will bestow it on those with whom he is in covenant. He will bestow his blessing. The people did not learn their lessons. And their example has been repeated over and over. We don't learn our lessons either. But still, the Lord promised he would bless them. So what was to be their response? Well, we read it here in this sermon. They were to cleanse their hearts. Consider now. Consider it. In verses 18 and 19. Cleanse your hearts. Take heed to your hearts. Take heed to the attitudes of your hearts. Don't rend your garments. That was the outward show of ceremonial law. Don't rend your garments. Rend your hearts. Seek after the Lord. And the Lord Jesus himself emphasized this very lesson in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. Verse 33. 
But seek ye first the kingdom of God first and his righteousness and all these things shall be added unto you. The people to whom Haggai preached were to seek after the Lord. God has said he will bless the people. And that blessing would take, we find, a distinct form. And that is the third sermon in the chapter, Advent. Advent, the last four verses. There are echoes of statements in the first sermon, in these last four verses, such as in verse 21, Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I will shake the heavens and the earth, and I will overthrow the throne of kingdoms, and I will destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the heathen. What was the Lord signaling? He wasn't done with his purpose in the world. The fact that Jerusalem lay in ruins was not the end of the story. There was a greater day coming. God was saying to the people when the opponents of the truth would face their overthrow. That day is still coming. And the people of God should be anxious for it to come. Those who in the language of Shakespeare, strut and fret their hour upon the stage as though they were people whose lives and memories would never end. God says here they will face their overthrow and heaven's glorious king will appear. There's a lot made in this chapter of Zerubbabel. He was an important figure because even though he had spent his time in exile as well, he was an ancestor of both Joseph and Mary. We can find that first of all in Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. Verse 11. And Josias begat Jeconias and his brethren about the time they were carried away to Babylon. And after they were brought to Babylon, Jeconias begat Zelethiel. And Zelethiel begat Zerubbabel. And Zerubbabel begat Abiad. And then if you follow the line down to verse 16. After they returned from Babylon, Jacob begat Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. And then let us turn to the Gospel of Luke chapter 3, where we have the genealogy of Mary through another of David's sons, Nathan. 
Luke chapter 3 and verse 27. Speaking of the son of Joseph, the son of Judah, which was the son of Joanna, which was the son of Risa, which was the son of Zerubbabel, which was the son of Salathiel, which was the son of Neri, and so on through the genealogy to verse 31, which was the son of Melia, which was the son of Menan, which was the son of Mattatha, which was the son of Nathan, which was the son of David. So both Joseph and Mary significantly traced their lineage back through Zerubbabel. We read in Haggai chapter 2, at the end of the chapter, that Zerubbabel would be a signet in the Lord's hands. His person would be the type of the coming of Christ, who would descend from David through two lines, and would therefore fulfill completely all the requirements for the king whose reign would never cease. So here's a word to those who are in poverty, the people in Jerusalem. They had nothing. The world mocked them. Look at those feeble Jews. What do those feeble Jews? So it is today those who take their stand for the truth face the mockery of the world and sometimes even of other professing believers but the message that came to them had echoes of the message of the first sermon verses 6 and 7 for thus saith the Lord of hosts yet once it is a little while and I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land and I will shake all nations and the desire of all nations shall come and I will fill this house with glory saith the Lord of hosts verse 9 the glory of this latter house shall be greater than of the former saith the Lord of hosts and in this place will I give peace, saith the Lord of hosts, because in that place would speak the Messiah himself, Jesus of Nazareth. So here was the message of the prophet to the people who were in the midst of poverty. Set before you the hope of spiritual prosperity and blessing for it's going to come strengthen your hands strengthen your resolve strengthen your commitment to the work that God has called you to do and resolve you're not going to be turned aside from it the people who came back to Jerusalem soon lost heart they lost interest in doing God's work they became more 
involved in their own lives, in building their own houses, to the point that the prophets had to say to them, is it time for you to live in houses with ceilings in them, but the house of God lies waste? Here was the challenge to them. Turn your hearts to the Lord. And that is the challenge the Lord has for his people in these days. Turn your hearts to the Lord. Resolve that you will commit yourself to the Lord to do his work. Whatever the people around you say, you will not join the compromising crowd, the apostate crowd, whatever it costs you. You will commit yourself to do that which God has called you to do. If the Lord's people do not give themselves to that work, there's not anyone else who will. So in these days, as it was true 520 years before the coming of Christ, we need that message to hear that message. God said, I will fill this house with glory. May he fill this house with his glory in these days for his name's sake.